2: For making the time to talk with me, Greg, you are a true friend. that's eh, what friends do for each other. All right, I need your advice. A couple of years ago, I joined the website Ashley Madison, which is for cheaters. And even though I wasn't in a permanent relationship, I really wanted to have experiences with other cheaters. So I made up this husband named Wycliffe, and I said I was cheating on him. But then I met this other guy, and he had this parrot, and the parrot didn't like me, go figure. But I liked everything else about the relationship, and so he used to say... If you don't run away from the parrot, the parrot won't bite you. So I started standing my ground, and the parrot bit me really hard on the leg, and I started to wonder, is seeing the parrot bite me part of the sex thing for him? Because the sex thing is really great in other ways. Okay, Kyon, I really would advise you to stop. I'm not done yet. So anyway, the Ashley Madison website has been hacked, which means all this is going to come out in public, and the guy with the parrot is Ted Cruz. So there's going to be a lot of media attention. By the way, do you think this blouse is okay to wear to my first press conference? Uh, I'm not really sure. That wasn't the main advice I need anyway. What I need to know, Greg, is... I'm going to stop you right there and say this is too big for me. You really need to see a therapist. No, I don't want some old Viennese man prying into my toilet training. I want advice from a friend. Like the time you advised me not to go on living as an Amish man. Yeah, but you did that anyway. And it was a disaster. But sometimes I still do miss my beautiful Rebecca. And the barn raisings and the crude sexual jokes about livestock. I'm still not sure what you're asking me this time. I don't know. What if I married some really nice guy named Wycliffe? Could we start over? Would I need to tell him about my past with the parrot? Are you sure this blouse is okay to wear on 60 Minutes? I need so much advice. It's time for a whole show on advice. And now he tells people they can save a lot of money on therapy just by shocking themselves with jumper cables. Colin McEnroe.
3: I stopped giving that advice out. That turned out not to be very good advice. I was trying to help. I was, you know, as so many people who give advice are trying to do I was trying to help um, but the jumper cables not a good idea so, so don't try that. that is actually not an official recommendation of the Colin McEnroe Show. So we are going to do a show about advice. We're going to look at the history of advice. We're going to look at the present of advice. Nobody embodies the present of advice more than uh, Emily Yoffey, who is uh, dear prudence, uh, the advice column in slate.com. The, for the history of advice, we have Elizabeth Archibald, uh, a professor at Johns Hopkins and the author of Ask the Past, pertinent and impertinent advice from yesteryear. She's sitting right here in studio with me uh, knitting a sampler or crocheting us, I don't know, whatever they used to do in the past. Um, And uh, also joining us uh, via a studio connection, Francesca Gino. She sort of looks at the inner workings of uh, advice, uh, why people don't take good advice, how people wind up being the kinds of people. Well, her book is called Sidetracked, which is sort of a book about how people wind up being the kinds of people who have to write to Emily Offey for advice because in fact they've made uh, decisions that were not in their best interest and sometimes in the process of so doing have ignored good advice. Well, why would you ignore good advice? Um, what are some of the factors that determine whether or not you take advice when it's offered to you? All of those things we are going to explore today in the gigantic uh, area of advice. And let me also say a couple of other things here. First of all, if you need advice, Uh, You may call 860-275-7266. Someone here will be able to give you advice or explain to you why it is you're not going to pay any attention to it anyway. 860-275-7266. You may also tweet your requests for advice to Greg Hill at WNPR. Colin, he is our tweet master. He may advise you. He may pass your questions on to us. I don't really know what will happen there. I also do want to say that we are in the middle of a very exciting season on the Colin McEnroe Show. It is the season, it probably has some, it probably sounds better like in Spanish or Italian, it's the season of stealing guests from Mike Pesca's The Gist. And so last week we had Ben Yagoda. Today we have Emily Yaffe, who regularly appears uh, uh, with Mike. And uh, tomorrow we will cap off this season by doing the entire show with Mike Pesca. Uh, he's actually writing a letter to a device column right now about what to do about this problem of people who steal guests from him. Although I'd like to point out that... I I bought Emily Yaffe Industries when it was trading at two and three-eighths. I had her on the radio way before Mike Pesca ever did. So um, anyway, that's where we are. Let's begin. Let's sort of try to define our terms. I'm going to start with uh, Emily and Elizabeth on this. Um, So... um, Emily, advice is really different from, I mean, if I tell you that if you're in Paris, visit the Luxembourg Gardens or that if you're uh, dining in such and such a restaurant, make sure you get the you know Vietnamese pancake or something. I mean, that's kind of advice, but that's not really what we're talking about when we talk about this world of advice. So w- when you think about the things that lie within the framework of your job, w- what characterizes those things?
0: Well, people write to me. Total strangers write to me and say, "Should we have another child or not?" <laughs> Th- that's the kind of thing that's different from the scallion pancakes. And uh, I've been doing this. I'm closing in on ten years, and I've I I remain very surprised by the kinds of things that people are moved to write to a stranger about, but. Often they, they say, I know it sounds crazy that I'm writing to you, but I need a totally objective voice. I don't want to ask my parents. I don't want to talk to my friends about this. I've read your stuff, and I think you're sensible, so what should I do?
3: So one difference between that and, Elizabeth, what you've looked at is th- you've looked at these um, sources sources of advice often from the very distant past. So these would maybe 16th century sources of advice. But there's no real indication that anyone had solicited these sources of advice. In other words, with Emily, the process begins with somebody contacting her and saying, you know, should I go to Europe? My cat's dying. Um, and, you know, but there's no indication that anybody has asked these who are these sources that you found I mean and, and how is it they're dispensing advice on on how to dance in an appealing way
1: right for the most part, this is unsolicited advice, and it really runs the whole gamut so everything from cooking to social situation, sometimes you even suspect that maybe it was sort of solicited advice that someone encountered a problem at a dance and someone was responding to that particular situation. <laughs> Um, to advice that we really sort of scratch our heads about today, wondering why anyone would have wanted to read this advice, like how to cut your toenails underwater in the 16th century.
3: Um, it's almost impossible to cut your toenails underwater in the 16th century now. Uh, but um, so, and so, Emily, one of the things that I notice when reading your column. Uh, which I'm obviously a devoted reader of, is that, first of all, one thing that you're very good at, a lot of these situations to me seem like layups you know, and, and I always agree with the way that you lay the ball up, too. You know, it's like how how hard is this? But one of the things that I noticed that you do is that you really do... Like, let's take the woman with the cat, alright? So there's this woman, and she's got this cat, and the cat has terrible symptoms, and the cat may die, nobody really knows, but she's got a vet, and she's got a cat sitter, You know, she's got all this support for this cat. <laughs> and she, meanwhile, she's got this once-in-a-lifetime trip to Europe where she's with some kind of musical group, and I, her parents and her partner are coming with her, and but she's actually considering canceling this trip because the cat might take a turn for the worse and die while she's over there. And to me, it's like I just I drive her to the airport. This is an easy one. Go to Europe. But I, I really loved the fact that you really tried to consider hard the possibility that there was another way to look at this. True?
0: Well, I'm a cat person. Hmm. So, you know, I understand her impulse. And I'll tell you um, – Colin, if it's so obvious to you, just go to the airport. You have not dealt with cat and dog <laughs> people very much. Um, so I tried to add an extra fill of advice to that. Of course, I said, you have to go. This is a serenity prayer time. You've done everything you can. Now there's nothing more you can do. And you've really got to go enjoy yourself and not let everyone else down. But I suggested while she was away, she tell her vet and her cat sitter not to contact her about anything because if the cat expired, the trip's ruined, and what can she do?
3: Right. You don't want to be on FaceTime with your cat while he, he's dying, you know, and that's kind of really going to, you're not going to enjoy Venice quite as much somehow. So-
0: uh, let me add I do want to add one thing. The toenails remain a very uh, vibrant source. Of advice, uh, I've I've gotten more than my share of toenail questions.
3: Really, you get toenail questions?
0: Toe feet, toenails. This is. I just had a letter uh, a week or so ago. A woman's engaged. Um, you know, madly in love. Now they're living together pre the wedding. Uh, she said, I put my feet on the coffee table when I'm watching TV, when I'm on the couch my, I I this one, yeah. my whole life. My fiance is utterly grossed out by the sight of my feet and tells me not to do it. So, you know, feet engender a lot of deep feelings. I, I have had letters from people saying uh, the people in the cubicles next to me cut their toenails at work. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's
3: but not underwater. <laughs> All right, so, and, and so just to set up some of Francesca's stuff, I, I want to spend a moment, um, Emily talking with you, something that you and this Mike Pesca person have been doing, which has been very interesting on his show, just with Mike Pesca, is contacting people who have received your advice uh, and have either acted on it or not acted on it. Uh, and, and then just sort of seeing, well, how did this all pan out? And you've probably done enough of them now that hey, you have a halfway decent sample size. I mean, what have you learned uh, from this experience? What have you learned about either, first of all, whether or not people take your advice and B, how that plays out if and, if and when they do?
0: I, I think it's shown conclusively, if you don't take my advice, you're very foolish. Um, so the people who took my advice were happy. Uh, <laughs> um, most, you know, lots of times people write in, "Should I? Shouldn't I?" And um, so they're just looking for someone to kind of, or, or they, or they say, "I think I should," and they're looking for confirmation. And often um, they're right about that. But but one one of the cases that really struck out stuck out to me was this young man uh, wrote in. He had a very serious girlfriend. He had a one-time cheating episode at a drunken party, and the woman at the party came later and said, I'm pregnant. He was one of, I think, three to five possible father candidates. Hmm. Um, So he was Should I just wait and see till the kid's born and what the paternity test shows up, or should I tell um, my girlfriend? And I I was absolutely adamant, you have to tell your girlfriend. Too many people knew. You know, people knew, and he said, oh, no, 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 people – so I I had written – in the letter he would written to the – and I said, you have to tell. This is not tight information. So when we talked to him, he said – he hadn't told her, and sure enough, someone in their social circle did. Hmm. Oh. So that was clearly a case. He needed to fo- have followed my advice. He, he also was not the father.
3: All right. So, um, Francesca Gino, um, obviously uh, somebody who writes to Emily looking for advice is, is different from somebody who's just sort of out there in the world in, in an unpredictable situation who, who maybe gets advice. But what has your research told you about whether somebody – Let's say that this didn't happen in the context of an advice column, but it simply happened in the context of me giving advice to that young man who apparently was also unaware that Emily would sell his story to Amazon, that they would turn it in to the Sharon Horgan uh, Rob Delaney series uh, uh, catastrophe, which is basically the plot, I think, of that letter. But anyway, um, that, that I would give advice to that man. You've got to tell your wife or your significant other about this. And he would ignore it. He would not take my incredibly good Yaffe-ish advice. Why? Why would? Why would that tend to happen? Why would he not take my advice?
4: I wouldn't be surprised to hear that that the person actually decided not to take advice. What we know from years of research of looking at when and why people take advice is that generally people don't listen to others' views unless they looked out for an opinion to a specific person that they know is going to support their view. So think about last time you really wanted to do something or uh, you had a decision in your head when you thought about, well, let me ask for advice. Who did you go to? Very naturally, we tend to go to people who are going to support our decisions, and that is going to make us feel even more confident about the fact that what we want to do is right. People tend not to take others' advice because They are too focused on themselves and their perspective, so they think that they have better information, that they have a better view of uh, the problem or the decisions that they want to take. And so unless the advice is consistent with what they wanted to do in the first place, they disregard it.
3: All right. And uh, as we go along, we're going to talk about some of Francesca's research, too, where she's sort of played a little bit with the variables just to see what would make somebody either more or less likely to take such advice. But, um, Emily, I want to come back to uh, what she's saying because one of the things that happens now, so w- somebody like you, you're sort of a top-down source of advice and, and certainly the sources that Elizabeth Archibald has compiled and put together once again, these these fonts of wisdom from the 16th and 17th century and they have Latin names that sound very impressive uh, and and so th- there's a sense that this isn't sort of fungible this is just sort of the way things are this is where the advice comes from but I, know, I, I noticed for for example, that Reddit now uh, have the so-called front page of the Internet um, has this gigantic advice section where they you can bring up a problem and then just sort of look at all the answers until somebody, a la Francesca Gino, tells you the advice that you wanted to get and, and then you can kind of act on that. And to me, that's not really advice seeking, right? It's just, it's just sort of looking at the menu until you find the dish you want to order.
0: Right. I think that... So. One of the reasons that advice columns survive, because when you can do stuff like that, you can go on the Internet and get 50,000 answers, is that people come to know and trust a certain voice. And that mean, doesn't mean they will always take your advice, but they feel you're a trustworthy person. The most gratifying responses I get from people are when they say, When it's clear, they write in and they say, I want to tell my sister-in-law off. I have had it. I'm not putting up with this anymore. And given the context, because a lot of questions are, do I act or do I let it go? If I say, for example, in this case, I would let it go, when I hear back from people saying, thank you, that was the right thing, I needed someone to tell me to climb off this mountain and not do it. So they really want to do it, but they want, they're gratified that someone else says, "Eh, no. And, and, you know, this is part of what a good marriage does. Um, You know, you complain to your spouse about something at work or whatever and say, I'm gonna, and your spouse says, no, you've told me now you're not going to do that. So I, I think people are more open to uh, hearing what they don't want to hear
3: if they trust the source. Um, and uh, you know, so to that point, Elizabeth Archibald, these sources that you found, um, first of all, I noticed that they seemed to be male, right? A lot of male writers. A lot of male writers named Thomas. In fact, <laughs> entirely, the entire province of advice was uh, dominated by male writers. I mean, who are these people, Who these sources, whom you could conceivably trust for advice about how to comport yourself?
1: Well, I think one of the interesting issues in the history of all of this how-to and advice literature is the question of authority. How do these authors set themselves up as the person that you really want to take advice from? And it's interesting, I think, that the words author and authority come from the same root. And so the person who's writing in a way um, is someone who should automatically be trusted. Um, But they do make efforts to sell their advice and sort of you know, Ovid, for instance, when he's writing his uh, poem about seducing Romans says that you should trust him because he has experience in this field. Um, And a lot of the 16th and 17th century texts, you know, present this kind of improbable solution to a problem or a technique, and then they append the word probatus, proved or tested to the end of it. Or they say, you know, I knew a man who was really fat and he tried this technique and then he became very slim. So they do have to sort of work hard to establish themselves as people that you would want to take advice from.
3: So authority is a really important question. And so, um, Emily, um, yeah, you've been doing this for many years now. Um, How did you decide, how did the world decide that you were such a person, a person Uh whose whose advice would eventually carry the label probatus?
0: I was there. Uh, I am the third prudence. Uh, The first prudence was um, Herb Stein, who was the uh, head uh, of Nixon's (laughs) Council of Economic Advisors and father of Ben Stein. So obviously, you know, totally qualified to be an advice columnist. He's the
3: person who (laughs) took us off the gold standard. We did that show last week, actually.
0: (laughs) He... Started Prudence when Slate started, now or about 20 years ago. He did it for a few years. Then Margot Howard, who was Ann Lander's uh, wow. daughter, was the next Prudence. She was leaving, and I thought, well, you know, I'm a Yenta, know-it-all. This seems like a really fun thing to do. So I said, hey, I'd like to be the next Prudy.
3: But if I were to press you now on your authority, what would you say? What, like, what What do you think qualifies you?
0: When Dear Abby died, I was reading a lot of her obits, and she was asked that a lot. Who are you to tell people what to do? And her answer was always, I'm a person with common sense who can express it. And I thought, that just really beautifully sums this up, because I am not a psychologist. I have no special expertise. I'm just a person who I hope has common sense, who also, I'm a journalist, so there are lots of questions that I will go to someone with more expertise. I can go talk to that lawyer for free and get you some, you know, free advice about what to do. Um, But I don't have any special qualifications. You just either you like what I say or you don't.
3: So, Francesca, one of the things that you've discovered is that it's not necessarily how much power or authority we feel is invested in the giver of advice, it, it may, one of the, uh, the big variables may be how powerful we, the potential receiver of advice, feel at the moment that we're being advised. And this is something that you've tried to play with a little bit or, or, or make into a variable. Tell us what you found about that.
4: Yeah, so we looked at power and just the perception that, as you were saying, calling whether we are a powerful person versus not. And what we found is that when we are feeling that we are not that powerful, we are much more likely to be open to the advice of others as compared to situations where we are powerful, So it's interesting that this sense of power, and as I said, it might not be real or objective, it might just be a perceptions that we have, make us feel not very confident in our own information or in our own opinion. And so we tend to be much more open to what others have to say. And my sense is that a lot of people who are writing to Emily are probably in that positions or feeling not very confident about their own decisions or not feeling very
3: powerful. And and so... um... Well, actually, let me just back up, Francesca, and ask, me, ask you a different question. Is there, in, in the vast world uh, of scientific studies uh, in social science, is there a reason to suppose that it's a good idea to take advice, that a second set of eyes, another brain, a second opinion um, is, by and large, I mean, it sort of plays out on average, uh, it's a good idea to listen to that advice?
4: Yes, that is a very robust evidence suggesting that having another opinion on the table or somebody else's advice is quite helpful as long as you're receiving the information from a person who's going to provide a different view. So if I went to somebody for advice on whatever topic, Career, being on a diet or something, even like uh, investing money. And I went to somebody who's Italian, who's a professor at Harvard, who's, who has a background very similar to mine. I'm likely to get information from a person who's exactly like me. So they're going to provide information that is not that different. But as long as you have some differences in the background or in the perspective that the person can offer lots of evidence that suggests that listening to advice is a good thing.
3: Do you, do you agree with that Emily that that probably you can give better advice or at least a fresher perspective. It makes sense that you would be able to do that for somebody who is very different from you.
0: One of my favorite things about this column is Christmas time and uh you know 2 months prior to the holidays I start getting tons of Christmas dilemma family letters i'm jewish so i love giving christmas advice because um, i can be really objective about that right
3: right um uh, on the other hand you felt as though your status as a cat owner uh gave you the well i mean in, in, it's interesting because your status as a cat owner gave you the ability to empathize with the, the person who's making the complicated and difficult decision, apparently, about leaving this cat behind, but then also give you the ability to say, no, you got to do it. You got to just put the cat out of your mind. So, I mean it does it sort of helps to, to to have some skin in the game. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. Uh, if anybody has questions or comments, we'd also love to know whether you do seek advice, whether you do take advice once it's given to you. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Tweet over to us at WNPR Colin.
0: My feet are too long. My hair's falling out, my rats are all wrong. My friends, they all tell me that I'm no friends at all. Won't you write me a letter? Won't you give me a call? Sign,
2: bewildered.
3: What, in your opinion, makes for good advice? Only
0: give it if it's asked for.
2: What makes advice good? If it's true. If it's not true, it's bad. (laughs) That's all I can tell you about advice.
3: Have you ever wished that you took advice when you had not yeah, in my 20s, and I'm in my 30s now, and definitely, like, I just kind of overlooked a lot. Not that I necessarily would have understood it.
1: Certainly a lot of people have pushed bad advice on me, especially career advice. Like, I'll go to someone, and, and basically they're trying to say, I'm qualified, and you're not qualified to do this. That's happened a number of times. Like, once I was younger, I was thinking about becoming a therapist, and this white woman said, well, you're Asian, so only, only Asian people want to go see you. I was really shocked. Like, later I realized how absurd it was, but
2: it was discouraging at the time. I was young.
3: All right, Voices from the Street uh, talking about advice. Uh, this uh, They were solicited by our own Allison Ehrenreich. Allison is the person who conceived of this show uh, and has uh, designed it and produced it and done a wonderful job, I might say. So let's look, talk a little bit about sort of the... Um, the kinds of things that people ask for advice about. Um, we're also we're going to be talking as we go along here today. I should remind you, Emily Yaffe writes the uh, incredibly popular and influential uh, Dear Prudence column for Slate.com. Uh, Elizabeth Archim- Archibald is the prof- uh, professor at Johns Hopkins and the author of Ask the Past, Pertinent and Impertinent Advice from Yesteryear. And Francesca Gino, her book is called Sidetracked. It's about how people make mistakes uh, and wind up in situations where they have to invite, they have to write to Emily, Uh, Yaffe because they wound up on Craigslist uh, pretending to be somebody that they want. I can't even summarize that letter Uh, but uh, let's just say people who make mistakes and and she's actually studied sort of um, why people either do or don't take advice. She's done experiments to sort of influence uh, to show the influence of various factors on whether people do or don't take good advice. I want to go back to this sort of fundamental bedrock question of the nature of advice and what people seek advice about. So, Elizabeth, you know, you went back centuries and centuries and centuries, and it seemed like some of the advice that was given was almost in the area of low-hanging fruit. For example, somebody might write to Emily now and say, I'm not popular at dances, Girls don't like to dance with me. What am I doing wrong? Well, how can I get girls to dance with me? Um, Here we have Antonius Arena writing Legas Dansandi, the laws of dancing, uh, writes, Friend, when you are dancing, be careful not to belch, for if you belch, then you will be a real pig. Furthermore, never fart when you are dancing. Grit your teeth and compel your arse to hold back the fart. Do not have a dripping nose and do not dribble at the mouth. Uh, no woman desires a man with rabies, so forth and so on. See, I feel like this is low hanging fruit. I mean, is that that's the best advice somebody can give somebody at that time, or was it simply the case that really people at that point were more earthy, more body, less aware of the fact that basic kinds of digestive and and sinus oriented motor control would you know contribute to their success or failure?
1: Well, first of all, I think this is not bad advice. No, it's not so bad advice. that. Um, But this is a kind of funny one because it's essentially a 16th century dancing manual for lawyers. It was written by a lawyer, (laughs) and he says in the introduction that he wrote this book because he went to a lot of dances, and the ladies at the dance complained about the other men and how they didn't know how to dance. And so he offers up all of this advice, um, and some of it is dancing-related. You know, don't look at other people's feet when you dance. Don't dangle your arms stiffly. Pay the musicians, and then other advice is just sort of um basic hygiene related yeah. advice you know don't scratch yourself and things things of that nature um and I think what this points to is really the advice literature as sort of uh, amusement for readers mm-hmm. more than kind of practical vehicle for communicating good information. Um, this is actually a Latin poem, so that sort of indicates that its main purpose is not just to convey information, but rather to kind of amuse an audience. And I think a lot of old advice literature is um, fulfilling these other functions.
3: Well, plus uh, change, plus la même chose. I mean, I read Dear Prudence not because I need this advice but because I enjoy reading about other people's problems. Although one thing that I would say Emily is one of the things that the areas that you're exploring is um um uh, you know, we've gone from you know where can you or can you not scratch? And I'm not suggesting that you don't deal with some of these earthy considerations. We just went through toenails with you. But, um, but you know, I mean, also we, we, we live in a much more digital and disembodied age. So one of the recent questions that you had involved a woman who had foolishly uh, allowed her parents to look at the woman's baby on a regular basis through a, some kind of uh, baby monitor, some kind of sort of um, video feed baby monitor. And the parents had basically it, it just had turned into 1984, right? The, the parents now felt that they could advise the woman about her baby at any given moment.
0: I love that letter because uh, my baby is 19, so I didn't have this kind of technology. Yes, it's a baby monitor that's hook up hooked up through a phone app, And not only can um, – she she gave the password to her distant parents so they could observe the baby's room 24-7. More than that, they could shout advice through the monitor, which they did. (laughs) And it really has this North Korean feel to it. Now, why is she writing to me? She's writing to me because – She can't take it anymore, but her parents will be really upset if she disables their access to the app. So the question is not this technology question. It's a really old question of standing up to your parents.
3: Um, Yes, I I thought your advice was good. It was solid. You just got to change the code and tell them, you know. We tried this and it's not working so great. Um, so, Francesca, one we had a caller who said that uh, who that said that he thinks people give advice to build themselves up, uh, which is uh, kind kind of um, feeds into some of the research that you've done about power. Right, that if you are the dispenser of advice, you are theoretically in a very powerful position.
4: Yes, my colleagues and I were very interested in the idea that so often it seems that people give even unsolicited advice. And why might that be the case? And what we discovered in our research is that giving advice to people makes us feel powerful. So it makes us feel knowledgeable, competent, all these good feelings that otherwise we wouldn't experience if we didn't give advice or offer opinions to others.
3: Now, what, what, a lot of your research involves altering the mental state of the recipient of the advice. So, um, for example, one of the things that you've try, done is to try to play with the emotional state uh, of the person who's receiving the advice. What did you find out about that?
4: One of the interesting findings from that research is what anxiety does to us. So often when we look To others for advice or for their opinions, we are in an anxious state, or we are stressed out. And what we found in our research is that when we are anxious, we are twice as likely to take the advice that we received from others, even when the advice is actually not that good. So we are unable, because of that emotional state, to think through whether or not the information we received is good or bad. And what is interesting is that the anxiety often is not only anxiety created by the situation. So I'm talking to you. I don't know you very well. I think you're an expert. So I feel anxious about this relationship. And as a result, I listen to the advice more. But it is also anxiety created by something completely unrelated to the current situation. So let's imagine that I just... Uh, wrote my letter to Emily to get some advice, and i'm having a really hard time at work i 'm stressed out i 'm anxious so i 'm much more likely to listen to her advice because of those emotions unrelated to the decisions that we're actually discussing and i 'm getting advice on
3: um and i 'm guessing Emily that that rings true for you right that that someone is going to take your advice if they're i mean Maybe desperate is overstating it, but if there are even other things that are making them anxious.
0: You're making me anxious about the responsibility I have. <laughs> to, no, I Too late, too late. Uh, I do take it very seriously. I want the column to be entertaining because you talked about that. Why do people read these things if it's not their question? Because you want to... Uh, feel better about your life i don't have that problem or sometimes whoa i did have that problem that's that's interesting um so i want the column to be entertaining but i do take it very seriously and realize that people do act on my advice now they all have to keep in mind this i'm an online advice columnist so you know that's a caveat And also, sometimes I'll give a piece of advice and people will write, how dare you? That's sickening. You know, apologize, retract. And, you know, I have to say, I do not kidnap people and force them to ask me questions about their lives. This is all voluntary. So you're just, people are writing in for my take, I give it, and then they can take it or leave it.
3: Can you remember a particular piece of advice or sort of an area of advice where you got that kind of pushback?
0: Yes. Um, There was a letter uh, I got from a woman in her 20s who had two young children, was married to her husband. They were very happy, um, monogamous. She said she had recently um, come to realize she was bisexual. She had um, sexual attraction to women. She talked with her husband about it. He was completely understanding and supportive. But they made the decision together that they were going to stay in their marriage, their marriage was going to remain monogamous, and this was just an aspect of herself she was not going to actively explore. Her question to me was, should she tell everyone in her life? And my answer was, no. This is a private uh, thing about her sex life. If she were leaving her marriage and dating women, then that would be something, yes, to say, I've realized this about myself, but I, you know, I said, you just don't need to announce such things. And I got a lot of angry response, um, from, uh, bisexual people. Um, it was this kind of an organized campaign, uh, against me. And, um, I still stand by that advice in that set of circumstances. It's, you know, It's this is not never revealed that you're bisexual. It was this particular person's set of circumstances.
3: Right. And this particular person had Asked you, asked you, and therefore was entertaining each of these possibilities, uh, including the possibility of keeping it a much more private matter. And I, Francesca, I don't know if this exactly speaks to what you studied about cooperation, but there there is a big difference between um, advice. If I show up uh, at the side of some bisexual person and say who has not asked me for anything and who has not uh, solicited my advice and who is not going to be working with me in any kind of cooperative setting and say, by the way, don't tell anybody you're bisexual, that's going to have a very different impact than if, in fact, somehow or other, um, the, the, the recipient of the advice and the giver of the advice are, in, in a larger sense, going to be functioning, functioning in a cooperative way. Do I have that right?
4: You do have that right. And what Emily is doing is very helpful to the person writing, asking for advice, is the fact that she's focusing on the interest of the person writing and really understanding his or her situation. So one of the things that we study in terms of advice quality is making sure that the person giving you advice is not thinking about her situation or his situation, but instead is focusing on your context in which you're making the decision and in which you need advice. And Emily's doing that. So that's wonderful.
3: All right. We're going to grab a quick break. We're talking about advice. Um, all three of us, or three of our guests, will be back. Feel free to call us, 860 275 7266. Tweet us at WNPRCollin.
2: my boyfriend keeps saying you would make great Soylent Green. Do you think he thinks I would be good at making Soylent Green or that I would be a good Soylent Green ingredient? Right back soon. Today's show was produced by Allison Ehrenreich and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Jules Lefevre, Katie McAuliffe, and Anna Geismar. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ann Landers. For show pages, articles, and PDFs of all the return-to-sender letters from the Faith Middleton Show staff to Ask Xaviera, visit our website, wnpr.org, slash Colin. Tomorrow, a show about flags. And now, back to Colin
3: not even sure ask Zaviera is still around. But anyway, um, and not just a show about flags, but yes, a show about flags, but a show about vexillology, the study of flags, and uh, the greatest vexillological uh, journalist uh, ever, Mike Pesco, will be joining us, along with, with some other experts on flags. We'll be talking also about state flags and about why Connecticut's state flags isn't very good, but nobody else's is either, so don't feel too bad. Uh, we're talking about advice today, and we've got the experts to give you advice about advice. Francesca, Francesca Gino, professor at Harvard Business School, she's been studying... Studying Why People Do Not Always Take Good Advice, which is discussed in her book, Sidetracked. Emily Yaffe is with us. She is the woman behind Slate's Dear Prudence uh, advice column. And also with us, Elizabeth Archibald, a professor at Johns Hopkins University, a person who studied the history of advice, what kinds of advice was given in the past. This is all compiled, not all of it, but it's compiled and curated in Ask the Past, pertinent and impertinent advice from yesteryear. So Elizabeth, in sort of looking at all this, Did did you come to any conclusions about sort of what the most fertile areas for advice were over the centuries? I mean, some of this stuff goes back to the time of Ovid, which is to say the time of Nero. Some of it's from the 1400s, the 1500s. Are people always interested in the same things?
1: Well, there are certainly some things that never really change. um, And I would include romance in that category. Um, But then there are other things that seem more like an index of what people were interested in the time, more like a sort of... Uh, collective Google search history, really, than advice literature in some ways. So um, travel advice for the hot destinations of the day, you know, when it was popular to go on pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Then you have pilgrims guides telling you specifically where the quicksand is and. Um, And practical advice for wearing the fashions of the day. So, you know, when six-inch platform shoes were popular, there was advice on how to wear them without falling over. And new technologies, of course, resulted in lots of advice literature. So when the bicycle was invented, advice literature sort of had to process not only how to ride the bicycle, but also its whole social context. Were women allowed to ride bicycles or only tricycles? What should they wear, et cetera, et cetera? Um, And I think from the beginning we see that etiquette advice tends to proliferate in periods of social mobility. So that's sort of an interesting element of all of this because it was possible for people to learn the social forms and conventions that they needed to operate in a more refined context than the one that they were familiar with. And that may be why it's a well-represented genre in American literature.
3: Yeah, that, that makes sense. The more that you can, if you can change classes, if you can change your station, if you can If Demelza can marry Poldark, uh, that means that uh, you have to learn a whole new set of things that you didn't have to learn before. It makes total sense. Um, Emily, are you noticing any particular trends in what you're asked about? I've noticed lately, could be just a coincidence, that there have been a a number of sort of death-themed, you know, how-to-handle-the-end-of-your-life kind of themed, uh, ask-prudy kinds of questions. But uh, that may just be sort of the way things have been picked out. Are, Are there things that people are asking about more now than they were 10 years ago?
0: Well, To pick up on something Elizabeth is saying, technology is always changing, and I've experienced that myself in the course of the column. Um, You know, when the telephone was invented, it, it used to be the polite way you visited people was that you showed up at their house with a calling card, and, you know, you either were invited in or you left the card. Then the telephone was invented, you know, and it was considered this very intrusive kind of grotesque. but eventually it completely changed the way you visit. It's very rude to show up and ring someone's doorbell. Well, social media has really upended a lot of the way we communicate and socialize. And so I've experienced that whole thing over the course of, of the column. I remember not so long ago I started getting these letters. I had no idea what people were talking about. They were from college student saying, you know, this old friend of mine is posting on my wall and, and what she's posting is really obnoxious. So I'm taking it down. And she says, it's, you know, I shouldn't take down the stuff she posts. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, little did I know what Facebook would mean, but I get a lot of letters about, you know, from people of all ages. Gee, I thought I was Part of a social group, and now I found out everyone took a trip to Cancun without me because I'm seeing their vacation photos in real time. What do I do about this?
3: Right. Um, So yeah, obviously technology is going to cause huge shifts. You know, um, Francesca, you know there are some things, however, which I think are um, kind of eternal, and and one of them I think has to do with. I mean, one interesting question which we face all the time. I'm facing it today, without going into any personal details, is how do you get somebody to take your advice? And one of the things that you found out, and maybe you can describe this a little bit more, is that um, let us imagine that I'm trying to give some advice to someone. If I say, you better, you better follow my advice because I'm your boss or I'm your father or I'm your boss's father, and if you don't follow this advice, you know there's going to be consequences. And uh, If I'm very top-down about it, I, I actually won't get as good um, a result in terms of my advice being followed uh, as I would if I took, uh, what, a a more ingratiating approach, right?
4: That's exactly right. What seems to be very helpful in getting people to a spot where they're open to listening to your advice is by putting options onto the table. So we have a tendency when people come to us for advice to say, you should do X or you should do Y. And instead, what we could say is you could do X, but you could also do Y. And here are some of the factors that you should consider if you're considering doing X versus Y. So you're basically uh, creating some options and alternatives and different ways that the persons can use in looking at the same problem. And then you can end by saying, but if I were in your situations, given what you told me and the way you're thinking about it, I would do X. But it's a very different language that we can use to be more persuasive and getting the person to really listen to what we have to offer.
3: And, and Emily, that sort of almost circles us back to the first point that I, that I made to you, which is I think I would be bad at your job because usually when I look at the question that you're being asked, my response to the person is, are you crazy? <laughs> you know, of course you can't let your parents look at your baby through the pa- You know, are you are you nuts? And and that I mean Francesca's Francesca's point is very much on point about how you answer most questions, right? I mean, you you do lay out these possibilities and then say which one you'd pick.
0: Well, sometimes I do just slap people down and um those are some of the letters readers love best, but what you were talking about, Colin, when you, you clearly have the right advice for someone who is maddeningly not taking it, um, doesn't one often find these people or, uh, share your DNA? Um, you know, it can be helpful just to say, okay, course A will result in these following consequences, course, B will result in these. So just, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do, but keep in mind, if you do A, then you're not going to get uh, a reference from your current employer, which is going to make finding the next job more difficult, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, sometimes if you can say, yeah, you're going to do it, just think through this stream of, of actions down
3: line. Um, we, that is a, a good place to end and it's also a good place to end because we're out of time I want to recommend all of the work of all of our guests to everybody, Elizabeth Archibald uh, people really will really enjoy all the advice about how to dance and how to pack for a trip and all the kinds of things that people were advising other people uh, to do um, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. That's all in Ask the Past. Pertinent and impertinent advice from yesteryear. Emily Yaffe. well, read her column, Dear Prudence and Slate. Francesca Gino's book is Sidetracked. How not to wind up like somebody who needs advice from Emily Yaffe. nothing and it's worth the price. I'm so worldly rise, I should get the Nobel Prize for
2: Since you advised me to rob a jujitsu academy, I'm going to prison tomorrow for 10 years. Got any more advice? Well, you're going to want to make friends in prison, that's for sure. So try winking at them when you're in the shower. It'll show solidarity while being vulnerable, you know?